Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm the family pastor here at the Creek. And that video, um, it's probably about half of what I actually get to do here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I get to work with our kids ministry, our student ministry, and also our adult groups ministry. Um, and I'm, I know I'm a little biased because it is my job, but uh, I think I have the best job out of all of our other pastors, out of all of our other people here, and I love what I get to do. Um, but something you may not know about me is that I've actually been here at the Creek uh, for a little over 13 years. Um, when I was a high school student, my family attended the Creek for the first time. It was in a very different place. There were carpet on the walls. It was a repurposed old gym. Did not at all sound or look the way that it does. Um, and we fell in love, um, not so much with the place because it wasn't so much to look at, um, but with the group of people. And a few weeks went by, they found out that I somewhat knew how to play drums. And so somebody had the audacity and the bravery to let me get on stage and play those drums. And that went about as good as you expect. Look at what I'm doing today. They don't let me play anymore. Uh, but uh, what I love about it is that it was a church that captured the heart of the teenage version of me. And I am where I am today because a group of people showed up a group of people gave, a group of people served, a group of people gave up things that they loved dearly and sacrificed things that they loved dearly so that people like me could come and develop an authentic faith of their own. Um, and I am who I am today because of this church. So every time I get the chance to preach, to, to, to speak, whatever label you wanna put on what I get to do, uh, I always have to say thank you because um, I'm here today because of you and I do today uh, what I get to do because of you. But not only that, not only do I have a really cool job because of you, um, but I also have some other things. I got some bonuses. Uh, that sounds weird. Let's throw this up. I met my wife, Gabby, here. Uh, met her here. She, she sang on stage. It's the first time I ever saw her. Uh, and I actually proposed to her in the parking lot. Not a super romantic place, but it makes sense. And then we've had both of our children um, while we've been coming here. Not literally in the building, because... <laughs> It would have made for a great story, but it would have been gross. Uh, but since we've been here, we've had both of, our, both of our little girls. My oldest, she's right here. Emerson Gray, she's three years old. And my youngest, Juliet Rose, who is appropriately not looking at the camera because she is what I love to call a Sour Patch Kid. She'll cuddle up to you and then she'll bite you the next thing you know. Uh, she's, she's two, just Juliet Rose, she's, she's right there. But something else you may not know about me is that I'm a reader. A huge, huge reader. Uh, I'll all the time invite people to my office for coffee or for meetings. And every time they walk in, they see all my books because there are a lot of books. And they always say, wow, this isn't what I expected. I didn't think you liked to read. And it's like a, like a low-key jab. Like, we, we didn't think you were that smart. Like, we didn't know that Ryan booked. Uh, but, but I do. Uh, my goal this year, actually, is to read 40 books. And it's going, it's going pretty well, in case you were wondering. Uh, but one of the books that I've read, well, actually reread, is a book called Nehemiah. Now, it is, it is a book, I promise you. It's a book in the Old Testament. That's the first part of the Bible. Um, and it is, it's an amazing story. And I've read it before. I've heard sermons on this book before. But this time through, there's some things that have stuck out to me. And I think part of it is because the season of life that I'm in, being a dad, being a pastor, we put Miracle Girl on my face and a beard just sprang up overnight. Um, all that stuff uh, coming together to help me see the story a little bit differently. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Nehemiah is the story of God's people coming together and rebuilding and restoring a broken city. It was the city of Jerusalem. And the story, actually, to really understand it, you need to rewind 70 years from when the story picks up. See, God's people, they were prosperous. They seemingly had everything. Um, but they had disobeyed God. 
they decided to go and to do life their own way. And what happened was what, what always happens. When we decide to break the rules, right? When we decide to act on, on, our, on our own ideas and what we think is right, what we think is good, usually there's some dire consequences to that. And that's what happened for God's people. That's what happened for the Jews. And a, a rival kingdom rose up by the name of Babylon. They came in, they invaded, and they destroyed. They destroyed the army. They wiped it out tore down the walls, the houses, the homes, killed, raped, pillaged, plundered. It was carnage and it was mayhem on a level most of us, if not all of us, we have no, no idea for. We can have no appreciation for it. And then after they destroyed, and then after they killed, after they pillaged and plundered, they, they implemented a sick and twisted internship program. They went and they found the best and the brightest and the best looking and they enslaved them and they took them back to their capital city to, to, to serve them. What was left literally wasn't much to look at. They weren't that smart, they were old, they were weak, they were broken, they were poor, they were afraid. That was Jerusalem. And I imagine they, they tried to come together and they tried to rebuild, but it didn't take long for them to realize that it was, everything was too broken. Things were too bad and they lost their hope and they stopped dreaming and they just said, this is our world now. This is the way things are and we've just got to get used to it. There's no fixing it. It's too broken, it's too bad. We're just gonna huddle up and survive. Fast forward to, present, to what was present day, Nehemiah's story. Fast forward 70 years, a, a new king comes to power by the name of Cyrus and he issues a decree. And he says that all the Jews that were taken captive, they now have families, they have great wealth, they have great power. God had really, really blessed them where they were away from their homes. And King Cyrus says, you can now go home. You can go back to Jerusalem now. You can rebuild. You can make Jerusalem great again. And that's what they all thought they were gonna do. They were excited, they threw parties, they took their wealth, they took their families back to Jerusalem. And they thought this decree, it was gonna fix everything. All the brokenness was gonna go away. All the bad was gonna go away. They got to go home. They could rebuild everything. Everything was gonna go back to the way it was, to the way it should be. They were dreamers. And, but when they got to Jerusalem, things were worse than they thought. Things were more broken than they thought. Kids were starving, families were broken, the city hadn't been rebuilt, and now it was surrounded by enemies, people who hated God's people. And it didn't take them long to give up either because they saw that it was too big, that it was too bad, that they couldn't rebuild, that they couldn't fix it, that they couldn't make it great again. And they lost hope and they stopped dreaming and they gave up. Now, in my imagination, because just so you know, I have an overactive one. In this world, there was this 13 year old boy. And I imagine every Saturday night, because that's when they did church, every Saturday night, his parents would take them to temple. And he would go and he would sit through Saturday school, because that's also what they called it, because it was Saturday. And he would hear stories, amazing stories, stories about a guy, named, a guy named Joshua, who all he had to do was blow a trumpet and the walls of the city of Jericho came tumbling down and God's people won the battle of Jericho just by playing a trumpet. He heard stories, stories about a guy named Moses who had a staff in his hand, lifted it up and split the Red Sea wide open. Stories about a guy, a kid, not much older than him by the name of David, who with a sling and a stone would defeat the giant Goliath and free God's people from the Philistines. 
And he would hear these amazing stories. And he would go to these temple services. And he would talk, he would hear about God being powerful and loving and in control of all these things. And he would see his parents and his family members get emotional and he would hear sermons. And, and he would say to himself, if this is all true, if God did this before, if he really is good, if he really is loving, if we really do believe it, then why are things still this way? Why is the city still broken? Why aren't things better? Why aren't they getting any better? And why don't we just stop talking? Why don't we stop talking about it and actually do something? Why not? Next slide, please. Why don't we stop? And so a Saturday came and he looked at his dad and he said, you know what? I'm not going to temple today. It's just, it's pointless. You guys go have a good time have a good show, have a good service, whatever you call it. I'm not going. That Passover thing, I'm going to pass this year. You can get me Passover presents, but I'm not, I'm not going to celebrate it. I don't think, look at the way things are. I don't believe it. And my pet lamb lamb, we are so not sacrificing it this year. <laughs> and the story of Nehemiah, the reason why I love it so much is because this world, it's very much so our world. Walls may not be broken, there may not be enemies surrounding us. We may not be living in literal fear for our lives, but we are living in a time when the next generation is looking at us and saying, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Because all that they've seen the church do is just show up to Sunday on services and they've never seen the church show up in other people's lives. And the story of my generation, the millennial generation, and the generation coming up after mine, Generation Z, is the story of a group of kids and teenagers and students that have grown up and seen the church do absolutely nothing. And they finally had the bravery to say, I don't buy it. And they've walked away in droves. But the other reason why I love this story is because this may be where it starts, but this isn't where it ends. And so we're gonna take a look at it so we can figure out how to fix this, how to make it better, how to write a better story. And it starts by naming what is broken. That's how we start. That's how the story of Nehemiah started. His family had gone back to Jerusalem. They were part of the Jews that returned to, to, to the city. They came back to visit Nehemiah because he still lived in the capital city. He was a servant to the king. And his brother Hanani, he's, he's gonna tell him, bro, things are not so good. Things are not like we thought they would be. We were not able to, to fix it. As a matter of fact, those who survived, the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It's not good. We're in poverty, we're, 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 we're fearful, we're afraid, we're surrounded by enemies. Things are not like we thought they were gonna be. And Nehemiah, I love the way he responds when he says, how could those who have returned not seen how bad it was? Why hasn't anyone fixed this? Are they blind, are they stupid? May God rain curses upon their house and fill the town with cats. Those of you who are laughing, get it. Because Nehemiah did not say that. Although parts of me wish he had. Because it's an epic curse. No, he didn't say anything. He, he drew away from people. Locked himself away. He prayed. He fasted. He mourned for days. Because when he heard the news that things were broken, he didn't yell at it. He didn't get mad at broken things, which is so easy for us to do. He didn't wallow in what was wrong. He would name the problem and then he would spring into action. See, if we can't name the problem, then we can't fix it. 
And that's what Nehemiah did. Now for me, I'm of the opinion that we are in the same place as a church. That if our church ignores the problems in our community, we forfeit our right to have influence in our community. We may be right. And we may turn into a group of people that come together and pat each other on the back and say, oh, congratulations, we all found the right answer. But if we don't prove that we care to the next generation, to the people outside the walls, that's all we'll turn into is a group of 30 people patting each other on the back because we found the right answer. People don't care that we're right. They don't listen because we're right or we think we're right. They listen to us when we show up and we prove that we care. But first, we have to actually realize what's broken and what's wrong. Like, did you know that in the time that we have had a service this morning, we've sang songs, we'll pray prayers, some of you may even cry tears. There's gonna be a student, a teenager in our country who's gonna take their own life. They're gonna stop dreaming in the time that we're together, they're gonna to decide that it's too hopeless. They're gonna decide that it doesn't look better tomorrow. And there's not gonna be anybody in their corner to convince them otherwise. There's not gonna be anyone who has showed up and showed them the love of Jesus and showed them that they cared every 100 minutes. And it makes sense. Because before people turn 18, 20%, at least 20% of people experience depression, real depression, dark depression. And I'm of the opinion that that number is probably way, way too small. And it's probably way, way higher. These are, these are our kids. These are my kids, the, my, my, my girls. These are your kids, maybe even your grandkids who are experiencing this, who are going through this, and nobody knows. And for us, where we live, in our home, in our homes, in our towns, our city, our state, those numbers, they're even higher. Because I don't know if you know it or not, I don't know if you've taken the chance to look around and actually look at what's broken, but there's a lot of brokenness where we are. As a matter of fact, 25 to 35% in our area of people live below the poverty line, below it. That's five times higher than the national average. Drugs, we all know drugs are bad. We have to build new prisons to hold all the brokenness and all the broken people. Deaths from drug overdose where we live is over 20 times higher than national average. That's not normal. That's what we call broken. See, we pray for God to give us Kentucky. We pray for God to send people. We pray for God to fix our families and our lives and our schools and our homes, but all those things are broken. Kentucky is broken. Our families are broken. Our schools are broken. And then you throw on top of it the fact that in our country, and again, in our area, the stats are even higher, but national average, 43% of kids and students grow up without dads. Some of us can't feel that or appreciate that, but for those of us who were a part of that number, we know how much that hurts. How on Father Sunday, we had to hang our heads down because we didn't have one. Daddy-daughter dance, we couldn't go because there was nobody to bring us. there's some kind of effect that takes place when there's not a dad around. Don't believe me? 63% of those teenagers who are gonna take their own life didn't have a dad. 90% of all kids that are homeless or who have run away, they didn't have a dad at home. 
80% of rapists, they didn't have a dad. 85% of teenagers that are currently incarcerated, currently in prison, they don't have a father. And this is the world our kids grow up in. This is the world kids and students are growing up in, that kind of brokenness, and they grow up in that. And of course, they're gonna grow up to be broken people and have broken lives and broken marriages and broken families. That's where we live and that's where we are. And we pray about it and we sing songs and we'll cry. We'll start prayer chains and prayer letters. You know what? It's okay to expect a miracle, but as the church, it's not okay to wait for one. And that's not what Nehemiah did. He was a doer. I think that's why I like him so much. So he goes on, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. And, he, he, and, and in his prayer, he apologizes for the brokenness of the people because they've broken themselves. He, he apologizes for the disobedience. But then I love the way he ends it because it's kind of like, okay, God, I'm gonna go. This thing is broken. I have no clue what I'm gonna do, but I'm running. I, I, there are people on the other side of the brokenness. There are people at stake and I cannot wait and just sit here and yell about what's broken. I'm charging in and I'm gonna do something. And he ends chapter one. He ends his prayer with this sentence right here. I was cupbearer to the king. I love that sentence. I love it because it tells us a couple things. It tells us who he isn't. He's telling us who he isn't. His one job is to keep the king happy. His one job is to bring the king his beer at night. That's it. His only credential. He's not a pastor. He's not a spiritual leader. He's not a counselor. He's not a construction worker or an engineer, an architect. He doesn't know how to rebuild a wall. He doesn't know how to fix broken people. That's not his job title. That's not his, that's not his responsibility. But see, for those of us who are here this morning and we call ourselves Jesus followers and we call ourselves God's people, our responsibility is not our job description. We don't get a pass because there's not a pastor in front of our name. And we don't get a pass because it's not what we went to school for. No, see, it's our responsibility is to walk towards the brokenness, to walk towards the mess, to fight and to fix it because we are God's people. And that's what we do. But then Nehemiah, he's not just telling us who he isn't, he's telling us what he has. He has influence. Influence with the king. He has a relationship and he's gonna use it. He's gonna risk it for those people who are hurting. And he teaches us that as God's people, for those of us who call ourselves one, that we are supposed to leverage whatever you have, whatever I have, for people who are broken, for people who need me. For some of us, that's money. For some of us, that's time. For some of us, that's an extra hour on Sunday morning coming and serving. For some of us, that's a Wednesday night. For some of us, we've charged into the prisons and we work there. For some of us, it's opening up our house for groups, but leveraging whatever you have for people who are broken. And here's the thing, when we do this, when we get this right, it's gonna cost us something, okay? It's gonna require us to do more than just show up on a Sunday morning for a service because that's a starting point for faith and for following Jesus, not an ending point. And for those of you who have been coming to the creek for a couple weeks and now you call it your home, you've been coming for a couple months and now you call it your home, even a couple years and you call it your home and all you've ever done is show up on a Sunday, let me just tell you, you're not doing enough. 
That's the starting point, not the ending point. What you're doing is what we call lazy because there's broken people who need you to do more than just show up on a Sunday. They need you to charge into the mess. And I know that's a lot because it's going to cost you something. Because we're all for, we all think there should be somebody to hold the babies and show them the love of Jesus. We all think that, that toddlers, they, they need somebody to give them a good start when it comes to faith, to give them the basics. That elementary age kids and teenagers, they need a mentor, an adult other than their parents modeling Jesus, modeling love, walking into the mess. We all think that. We're all for better marriages. We're all for fighting drugs. We're all for empty prisons. We're all for people having friends and community and taking steps and having growth. We're all for that until it actually costs us a little too much, more than just showing up and hearing a sermon about it. But we can't expect to rebuild and restore anything without it having the potential to cost you personally. Fixing what's broken is gonna cost us as a church. It already has. Fixing what's broken is gonna cost us as individuals. For some of us, we've already felt that. And let me just be upfront, in case you haven't already put the pieces together, I'm going to ask you to do something today. At the end of the service, there is a request. There is an opportunity to jump in, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Nehemiah's gonna go, he's gonna go to the king, He's gonna ask the king for his blessing and the king gives it to him. The king doesn't just give him his blessing to go to Jerusalem and see the problem for himself. He gives him his blessing to go and fix it. Nehemiah is given resources and money and materials to rebuild the wall. And so he goes with all of his stuff in tow. He goes and he gets to Jerusalem at night. And the story says that, that he inspects the walls, the brokenness, the poverty, the enemy. He, ex he inspects all of that under the cover of darkness. And when he sees it, I imagine something happens to his heart. When he sees it, I imagine all of a sudden the problems become real because it's not just some pastor on a stage talking about it. It's right in front of him because proximity always changes perspective. It's easy to talk bad about the next generation until you actually know who they are and know their names and sit across a chair from them. It's easy to talk about that other party or that other group until you've heard their stories. It's easy to not understand their parent and why they're not doing what they're supposed to do until you've met them. Proximity always changes our perspective. Here's what I think that means for us. The more of us as a church, the more of us that get close to the brokenness, the more impact we will have. The more of us that can go and shine a light in the darkness, the brighter it will be, the greater chance we have to actually change this thing, the greater chance we have to make an impact. Because as a church, we should never measure our success as a church by how many people show up on Sunday. And there may be somebody somewhere that gets really mad at me for that. It doesn't matter how many butts are in the seat. We should measure our success by how many of God's people are willing to show up and the lives of other people. That's success. That's winning, is when God's people do more than just show up. We get in it. We walk towards the mess. We sacrifice and we leverage what we have. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. 
So many different ways. You can serve, you can be a part of a jail ministry, you could lead a group, you could be on a production team, guest services, so, so many amazing ways to begin walking towards messes, getting to know people. It's as easy as having a conversation with your waiter and waitress instead of getting, just getting mad at them over your steak that's under or overcooked. It's getting to know their brokenness and their hurt. It's more than just getting angry at the person who cut you off in the aisle at Walmart. It's having a conversation and getting to know the brokenness. But I have, I have a one way. One, one thing that I think we can all do, one thing that I think we should all do, a place to start. We can give every kid an adult who will show them who Jesus is. Because every kid needs one. Every baby needs a parent. Every baby needs someone outside of their parents who's gonna show up, hold them, pray over them, talk to them, show them that other people care, teach them that this is a safe and fun place. Every toddler needs someone in their life who's gonna give them a better start. Every elementary age kid and student age kid needs a mentor, somebody who's gonna show up in their lives. And here's the thing, that takes so many more people than what we have now, so many more. You may walk through and think that things look pretty and good, but let me just tell you, we need you. We need your help. As somebody who it's my job to pastor and to mentor, I can only really do that well for three people. Jesus can only really do it well for 12. And he lost one, by the way. We need your help. We have to have your help. Because the quickest and best way to change the world, to change the brokenness, to fight the darkness, is to change and capture the heart of the next generation. And there is no substitute for a consistent leader in a kid's life. I had a family that taught me faith. I had parents that modeled it. But the difference maker in my life was that there were other adults in my life who showed up and showed me the love of Jesus. And here's the thing, there's so much on the line this morning, so much on the line to how we respond to this news and to this message, because there's a generation watching us. There's a generation watching and waiting to see just how close we're willing to get. They are waiting to make up their minds about the God we claim to serve based on if we actually serve him and do something and do more than just show up. And if we aren't willing to get close, we will lose them. We will lose the next generation. We will lose your child. We will lose your kid. If we aren't willing to walk into the mess and to get close, we may have buildings all across Kentucky that one day will make great shopping centers because we didn't pass our faith on. We may have great worships and nights of worship. We may cry. We may have tears. There may be great sermons. But if we don't pass our faith on as a church, as God's people, we fail. And I know... You're busy. I know you have lots of things going on and I just can't understand or fathom. I know, I get that. But Nehemiah taught us something really cool about who was expected to help. Everyone in the city, no one got a pass. Here's what he did. He rallied the people together and he gave this short, succinct talk. You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see the brokenness? You see the mission? You see what we need? And the people, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Perfume makers, not brick makers. Teachers, not architects. Scribes. 
farmers, pottery makers. They had no clue what they were doing. But they jumped in and they did it because it needed done. So often we want to say, it's just not my gifting. I just don't have time for that. It doesn't fit in with me. Let me pray about it. They didn't do that. They jumped in and they got to work. And here's what it teaches us. It teaches us that as God's people, if we're going to do something about this, it's going to require us to do something that we don't know how to do. Don't, they didn't pray about it. They prayed while they were doing it. They didn't have to have a class on how to talk to a kid or a teenager. They didn't have a, cl- have a class on how to build a wall. They learned how to build a wall while they were building it. And they did it. And Nehemiah didn't pray for God to send the workers because Nehemiah knew something. He knew that everyone he needed in order to rebuild the town was already there. Everyone we need to give to every kid an adult who will show up and show them the love of Jesus is here. In this room, in these seats, because it's you and none of us get a pass. You're not too old. If you are old, own it. And you know the awesome thing? When a teenager shows up in a room, they will gravitate towards the oldest person who actually shows some concern and care and interest. Your age, it's not a liability. No, it's helpful. You don't know what you're doing? Don't tell anybody, neither do I. They just want someone who cares, who can show them the love of Jesus. And so the people listened to Nehemiah. They jumped in. They got involved. They got to work. But the story goes on, and it tells us that it took a little bit longer than expected to rebuild the wall. It was tough work. And after a while, morale started to drop. The old enemies started to surround the city again, and there were rumors, rumors that they were going to attack, rumors that it wasn't going to get done. And so Nehemiah did something that was genius in this moment. He did something awesome. He went to the most powerful people in the room. He went towards a specific group of people. And honestly, I had never noticed this before in the story. He goes to them and what he says to them and how they respond, it changes everything. Momentum shifts and the wall gets rebuilt. But here's what he did. He said, therefore, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and boats. He's gonna put guards. He's gonna put soldiers on the walls, people with with shields and with spears to protect themselves from the enemy. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah rallied the parents See, he didn't just put soldiers, trained soldiers up there. They weren't trained. They were moms and dads. And he went to the moms and dads and he gave them shields and he gave them swords and he put them on those walls to protect their kids. And that's what they did. He went to them and he said, remember what you're fighting for. Remember what this is about. This isn't about a city. It's not about a stupid wall even. It's not even about defending the glory of God because God's big enough to do that. It's about your sons. It's about our daughters. It's about our homes. It's about our families. 
Remember what you're fighting for. It's about more than just giving them a living. It's about more than giving them name brand clothes. It's about more than the car. It's about more than being their friend. It's about more than them liking you. It's about their futures. It's about their faith. It's about their eternity. And the parents, they stood up on that wall, shields in hand, swords in hand. And when the enemy came, you know what didn't happen? When the parents stood in the gap, the enemy decided not to attack because as soon as they got close, they realized there were soldiers on those walls. Wait, those aren't just soldiers. Those are, those are dads on those walls. Those are moms on those walls. And there is nothing more terrifying than a mom and a dad who's in it to protect their kids, who's in it for their kids' future, who's in it for their kids' faith. See how these people work together, how these families work together, what they did. It didn't just restore a city. It restored and saved their kids. So parents, you're the most powerful people in the room this morning when it comes to passing on our faith to the next generation, helping them develop authentic faith. And you've got to lead. You've got to do something. You've got to do more than just bring them to church once a week and entrust that it's being developed by a one hour service. You're gonna to have to do something. You're gonna to have to get up on that wall and you're gonna to have to fight. You're gonna to have to have some conversations. You're gonna to have to talk to your kid. You've got to take this personally because these are our kids. These are our children. These are your kids. Fight. Lead. And for some of you, it's gonna require you to slow down because that toddler doesn't walk as fast as you. For every three steps you take, they can only take 10. If you have an eighth grader, you're gonna to have to be patient. They're literally losing their minds. Their brains are going through trimming, which means they're losing memories. So what you told them last week, they probably did forget it. You're gonna to have to repeat some things, especially the important parts. For those of you with little girls, they're gonna need you dads to show them affection and love. Even when they hit puberty, even when they start developing, because if you don't show it to them, they're gonna find a boy who will. And you need to show them how a godly man behaves and how a godly man loves and what a godly man does. You've got to be that. You've got to lead. You've got to fight. You've got to do something. And then jump in. You've got to serve and be a part of the solution. I am where I am, not because of great parents, though that helped. I'm where, I am where I am because dads of other kids showed up. Moms of other kids showed up in my life and showed me the love of Jesus. And it was a community that came together and helped me develop authentic faith for myself. See, this isn't your problem. It's not just my problem, it's our problem but it's our problem to fix. It's our opportunity to do something better and to write a better story. People prayed that God would do something. People prayed that God would restore the wall. People prayed that God would restore Jerusalem, but God didn't show up in a miracle. He showed up in a people, a people who came, who loved, who worked hard and who fought. And it changed the way that people outside the city saw God. It changed the way that people inside the city listened to God. It changed how the next generation believed in God. We can do this. We have to do this. Because if we get this wrong, nothing else matters. Lead your families. Fight for your families. Fight for our families. 
in the seats in front of you, the back of the seats in front of you are cards. We need you on Sundays in Kids Cove and Kids Creek. We need you on Wednesdays at up front. We have to have you. Their faith is at stake. If you're a dad, if you're a guy, we need you even more. Because there are little boys, there are teenage guys that are growing up with no idea what it looks like to be a man. And you don't get a pass because it's a bunch of kids and you don't do kids because they need men. They need strong men and good men. You need to jump in and charge in when all the other boys who can shave are running away because they need you. Little girls need you. They need somebody to look up to. They need the model of a man or else they're gonna end up chasing the wrong model. So here's what I want you to do right now. Grab the card, fill it out. Sign up to serve, to be a part of the solution. Do something because how we work together can change the way a generation sees God. I don't know about you, I dream of a better world, a different world for my girls. And one day I want them to be able to look at me and say their daddy fought, fought for their faith, fought for their friends, fought for a better world. I wanna help them dream their dreams. I wanna help them live the best life that God has for them. And I hope and pray you'll be a part of that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the story of Nehemiah. Thank you, God, for how you challenged us this morning. And now, God, I pray that you would put a fire in our hearts, in our guts, in our bellies, in our minds, deep down in our soul, that you would put an anchor for what's broken. That you would help us to dream of a better world and not just dream about it and show up to a service and hear about it, but to fight for it and to charge in when everyone else is charging away. Help us to dream and help us to fulfill the dreams of our kids, of our daughters, of our sons, to make a better world. In your son's name of Jesus, amen.